So does Fubi or Fubi or Fubi or what's that one? Not Quibi. The Fubi. Fubu, what's the one that Fox has that's like basically free and it just shows up? That was your cigar smoldering in the ashtray. Yes! And it was you who left my grandfather's book out for me to find. Yes! So that I would... Yes! Then you and Victor were... Yes! Yes! Say it! Hey, it's another edition of Glop Culture. I'm John Pudhorst in New York with Rob Long in New York. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. And in Washington, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hi, John. So there was a delay. Oh, was that all about? What is that delay about? Rage? <laughs> so, you know, we are... We are <laughs> rage? What? Okay, so Jonah's handle... Wait a minute. So when you, when you are enraged, you take a beat? Because when I'm enraged, I just it's there's no pause. When I know that I am enraged and I shouldn't be enraged at John, because it would be wrong to vent against John, I take a beat and think sort of a serenity now, count to three, and say hi, John. So there you go. When uh, when my uh, one of my daughters was like I don't know eighteen months old or something like that, she was the she was a chill happy like very very calm sweet toddler but when she got angry those 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 few occasions on which she got angry she would stand in place she would stand in place <laughs> and she would start to she became a fedora tremble and turn bright red and there would be this kind of like 15 seconds and it was like the movie Hellfighters when they're standing there where there's an oil rig and it's like, she's gonna blow. It was like you could see you could see the rig <laughs> go from her feet up to her head through her mouth, and then she would just just go wow. bananas, you know. And it was comic, you know, because because it was such an extreme change from her ordinary Placidity. So, Jonah, you're an ordinarily well, maybe not a placid person, but you're a, you're. I would say you are a mostly peppy, upbeat person. So to see you in a easy going, you easy know, going, yeah. yeah. So to see you dealing huh. with rage by having to take a beat, it just speaks to the wrongness mm-hmm. of our society today. The wrong path that we. I, I I agree. I agree entirely. I think um. So so Podoris is already, is making a statement against anger. That's what I'm like against, against anger. anger. John Podoris, right. that is my against that's anger. my polemic. I love your essay. That's right. So uh, uh, okay. if I can if, if right. I can do, right. do a little sort of crossover thing here, uh, I had John on the remnant not too long ago, shortly around the time of the Tuvan missile crisis, and um and. John uh, John said, look, I don't really want to talk about Jeff Tubin. You know, I knew him in high school. We've got social connections. I see him around town. We've always been sort of cordial with each other. Um, not three minutes later, John said, he could fall out a window for all I care. <laughs> that wasn't anger. 
that wasn't anger at all. I, 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 I that was a vintage pod. Yeah, yeah. So, my daughter comes by. You should teach your daughter to say, like Bill Bixby in the Hulk, "Don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry." Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I think John Fedoritz saying anything about anger or is sort of. It's giving me Tobacco Institute vibes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, you're, you're the executive director of the Anger Institute. So, you know, anger can be, you know, it's, we have some research. It's not good to be addicted to anger. Maybe once a, once a day. It is right. One, a, one anger outburst a day is fine. You, no, 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 no deleterious health impact. I will bet that on a daily basis at at my place of employment over the course of my life, I have expressed anger far less frequently than you, Rob. I'm going to guess that you at your workplace. Oh, oh, yes. I assure you. Okay, good. Okay, that's. Yes. I assure yes. you that is so. Absolutely yes. so. Absolutely so. I have gotten furious at. Well, put it this way: I see movies where the ba- the boss is terrible, like Devil Wears Prada, and I I, I side with the the with Meryl Streep. I think she was actually I really literally do think she was totally in the right the entire movie. That this idea that she's a bad boss, like really? Oh, you oh you run this giant magazine? Oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, like they know that scene they always put when she yells at the girl because she doesn't know the color blue, and we're all supposed to say, "Oh, what a horrible woman!" I'm like, no, she's totally right. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why yeah. I have to yeah. put up with yeah. this. So yes. you're in I that expressed anger. Say what you will. <laughs> yeah. I'm, about I am Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Say what you will, right. But um, he, uh, you know, he had, he had some good points he was trying to make. Everyone, you know, everybody's trying to, everyone's telling their story is what I try to say. Well, you know, uh, Phil Spector, as we know, died, uh, died two weeks ago. And if you. Um, or did he? Ah, is he is he with Jeff Epstein? question. So, um, if you read about right. Phil Spector uh, after his after his death, um, uh, and when I heard, I knew quite a lot about him. I thought um, uh, I didn't know that one night he 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 had recorded an album with of all people Leonard Cohen uh, in <laughs> the mid seventies. And you can go on YouTube and listen to some of the the tracks from this album, which was dreadful in a way that few things. It's sort of like William Shatner's disco album. I want you to dance whenever you feel it. Up by the bandstand, in the parking lot, up on the table. Well, maybe the table could go, but I want you to be you. It was Leonard Cohen's Phil Spector Wall of Sound album. I mean, it was. Was the, was the disco album the same as the Rocket Man stage? Yes. Re- reading? Okay. Spoken oh. word. Anyway. Oh, it's technically disco. Anyway, well, that's, that's why I'm asking, or did he have two albums I didn't know about? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that would be shocking. And then it would be not be misplaced rage. It'd be, uh, how could people have kept this from me? Exactly. But it was, it was, um, it, I mean, you can't believe how bad it was. Anyway, so they were recording together. And uh, Cohen, uh, many years later, sort of recalled the experience of recording with him. And then one night at like three in the morning, while there were like 60 people in this three, this room that was three inches, uh, you know, by three inches, which is how he did the wall of sound. He just packed lots of uh, musicians into a room and had them all play at the same time. Um, uh, he got mad at, at yeah. Cohen uh, and uh, pulled a gun on him and uh, put a gun to his temple and said, uh, you know, I love you, uh, Leonard. And uh, Leonard Cohen said, I really hope so, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, just following on Rob's defense of bad bosses and stuff, didn't you just, didn't you, it's almost the exact same scene between you and Rhea Perlman on, on Cheers when you held a gun to her head? I didn't have to hold a gun to her head. She was uh-huh. uh, extremely cooperative. Um, but I do remember, um, yeah, the, 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 I think, the, I'm trying to think if there's ever a, a, a the, there's never any rage, mostly the rage that happened. I mean, I've heard stories of actors going insane and having, you know, a, a rageful tempers, but I've never seen it. Um, and I kind of feel like there's a difference, and okay, this is me, just, there's a difference between being furious at stuff and, 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 and a thing that's not, a person and then taking it out on a person but i would never do that i would never i've never yelled at anyone in work or really i I just don't do that but i've been very angry at stuff i've been angry that the 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 water bottles aren't cold that why don't you put them in the morning that way they're cold or like i've done stupid stuff like that that i was aware at the time was embarrassing but it was never out of person and i knew that people around me were rolling their eyes so it's you know are we making a little bit of a mistake here, though, conflating getting angry all the time or getting excessively angry or rage-filled with being a bad boss? I think there are lots of bad bosses yes. who never lose their temper in the ways that we're describing. You know, like, I, I, I always am very mm-hmm. uncomfortable talking about my first boss in Washington, Ben Wattenberg, because he gave me my start and I learned a lot and all of these kinds of things. And I don't think he was a bad person. Um, but man, he was not a great boss. And I have stories upon stories of my humiliation, um, unintended by Ben, but just, just horrible, right. soul sucking humiliation. Like Ricky, Ricky Gervais at the office level. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, that, uh, I never really want to retail, but, uh, our, and so, so there are bad bosses out there, and then there are mean bosses. And I just think there's a – and then there are rage-filled bosses. So there are different kinds right. of things, right? I mean, um, give you – I think I've told you this story before. Um, Alan Keyes, the way it got to me. You know, people talk about how, like, there are terrible sure. bosses in Washington. You mean um, um, Ambassador Keyes? Ambassador Keyes, who was – you know, this was around – this is before he was making sense at MSNBC. Mm-hmm. He was at uh, nat- National Empowerment mm-hmm. Television. Wasn't that the sort of precursor? Ah, to National Empowerment Television. Yeah, that's what it was. And uh, he um, was Newsmax before Newsmax. So uh, let me let me just defend off the lawyers. Say that this is the story as conveyed to me. I don't know that it is in fact fact, but it was conveyed to me with great confidence and assurance, as if by an eyewitness. 
And um, Keyes was in an elevator with a very young, a 20-something staffer, intern, assistant type. And Keyes gets in the elevator and he stands by, he's standing by the, the buttons, the button panel. And the assistant, because he got in second, is in the back left corner, right? Diametrically opposed, opposite, orthogonal, as some might say, to the button. Mm-hmm. And Keyes, standing by the button panel, says, that button's not going to press itself as a way to have this kid. <laughs> like, she, it was beneath him when there was a staffer with him to press the button himself. So the kid had to do, like, two steps forward. Right. And it's a very minor thing. It's not like he, you know, like, asked him to crawl through barbed wire. But the subtle, ego-driven humiliation of it is just, I think it's perfect. Right. But but here's the thing. That's such a weirdly disturbing story is that if you – it's so incredibly petty. <laughs> it's a joke that it's also like a, it shows kind of bad – even bad maniacal, tyrannical boss behavior because a really good tyrannical boss would have turned and said, hey, what, what, what floor are you going to? What kind of press for you? Okay, great. And that you, you look for those little tiny moments that mm-hmm. cost you nothing to be incredibly nice so that you can just be a jerk, just a rat bastard the rest of the day. I mean, most of the really terrible bosses I've ever heard about, I would say, oh, yeah. my God, you're kidding me. That person was so incredibly nice to me yeah. or in a moment to me. But that's kind of like somebody who's just a jerk all the way through, like press my own elevator button. You know that person's actually bush league D plus right. level, not very good and not very powerful because it's like it's like petty tyranny. It's the it's the you know it's the sheriff of Nottingham stuff. It's not King John. So <laughs> I mean, you know, there's also the there's also the really horrible boss who is horrible for reasons that only become clear much later. So uh, I'm not going to name names, but there are a couple of very famous bosses in show business. Like near like who who exhibit sometimes uh, psycho, near psych, psychopathic tendencies, throw things at their near, uh, yeah. underlings' heads, yeah, yeah. Uh, scream at the, you know like abuse them. One of them rhymes with lawn dong, um, <laughs> and very yeah, and various other and 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 it uh, then turns out some Vietnamese right, guy, and guess. then it turns out that uh, that they made their bones say in show business in the late sixties, early nineteen seventies, and were gay. And it was known that they were gay, and therefore they needed to show that they were hyper-aggressive and potentially physically dangerous in order to forestall the impression on the part of their underlings and the people in the business that they were soft, that they were too soft. And so they would behave in ways that were inexplicably psychotic. Mm Mm-hmm. For an instrumental reason, and there's probably more of that in bossism than people realize. Sounds very Roy Coney to me, like like Ray Cohn, sort of like that, right? Right. Well, it's it's a uh, yeah. I mean, and I don't think I don't think it was just Barry Diller and just I mean, who you didn't name, but I can name. Him. I I I I name no one. Uh, and yeah, I, it isn't just Barry Diller. I mean, one of the reasons was because those guys came up in a world that was like everything was inside your head, and um. 
and everyone was forced to be this, – this is the argument I've heard used by people from that era, that every, when they were coming up in show business, it wasn't like you had any credentials. Nobody like goes to show business university and gets an MBA in show business, although they do now. But the idea was that you were an apprentice, and it was like being an apprentice. And if you're an apprentice in, you know, if you ask Chef Daniel Bouloud what it was like to be an apprentice in Lyon when he was 15, he will tell you it was physically terrifying because, like, the older chefs he worked for would just throw knives at you if you did it wrong. Or, like, oh, if your stock was too cloudy, they would take the boiling stock and throw it at you. I mean, he has scar people, like, all these old chefs. They, and they, by the way, Daniel Blue's not that old. But uh, they all have scars from that. And that is kind of how show business works. So at a certain point when Diller was at a level where he was in charge of things, it was also where all of his underlings had been – were not kids from the 30s and 40s and, and even early 50s. They were kids from the 60s who were like, um, yeah, I didn't get a chance to like do that at that – they were dumb. <laughs> they were like lazy. Yeah. I mean I'm not really making the argument that it's okay to – Throw boiling stock on your. It's not always apprentice, okay. Yeah, but why was the stock cloudy? Why was it cloudy? The, like I, I, I explained to you what I wanted. Why did I not get it? And now, yeah, <laughs> I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the dirt. Yeah. Can I just say, Robin Jonah, that when people are in this kind of mood, they could use a little calmness, a little, a little uh, uh, mindfulness, uh, some meditative peace, and that's why I want to talk to you about headspace. Because, you know, you've probably tried meditation before, and it didn't work, right? Or you felt like you were doing it wrong. Well, look, if mental health is part of your self-care plan this year, you owe it to yourself to try headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions our members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of of well-being, backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash glop. That's headspace.com slash glop for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. Our thanks to Headspace for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So, uh, news came uh, last night, we're recording this on Thursday the 28th, uh, that at the age of 94, Cloris Leachman uh, passed the earthly veil, and um, uh, one was reminded of the fact that uh, out of nowhere, this 40-year-old actress uh, in the early 70s suddenly was everywhere doing everything and winning every award known to man from a standing start. She had uh, been, she won an Oscar for the last picture show. She won two or three Emmys for the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then in the course of the next uh, 40 years, won a whole raft of other Emmys. She won eight Emmys or something like that. She was in the Mel Brooks. When she had this moment in the 1970s where she became an iconic figure and uh rob i think is having a little trouble with his mic but he has a story 
Uh, sadly, Rob, uh, Rob, right now, as we're watching him, is a little like, uh, you know, watching. Yeah, I muted myself oh. because you were doing your wonderful spot oh. for this for the great meditation product, product. And then I didn't because I was I was I was getting peaceful and mindful myself. Cloris Leachman uh, was, was spectacular. She could do anything, and she did anything. And her, her, she will break your heart in her role in Last Picture Show, which you haven't seen. It is really an astonishing movie and fantastic. She's gorgeous in it. I mean, great in it. And she, and what her secret was? She has she had no vanity really for an actress of her level. She had zero vanity. She would like, she would be in Last Picture Show where she was basically looked. 10 years older than she was, and she was playing 10 years older. And then she was sort of kind of pseudo-glamorous as Phyllis Lindstrom on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and then her spinoff. And then she was in these hilarious um, Mel Brooks movies, Nurse Diesel, Frau Blucher. I am Frau Blucher. All these where she's almost unrecognizably yeah she's almost unrecognizably ugly right um and i work with her and she was exactly that person she was nuts in an incredibly fun way and she would just sort of start telling you stories and she would do little bits of business and you know like one like we had her she played for us she played the step the stepmother of swoosie kurtz and swoosie kurtz is very very rich um uh uh a very rich, uh, poor little rich girl who grew up, and this was her stepmother, her only living relative. All of her relatives died in a, uh, in a, you know, she always told stories about how they all died. It was like they all died from uh, some outdoor wedding um, eating oysters, and she said it was like, really, it was like they all died. It was like Jonestown, but with a swing band. <laughs> uh, uh, and then she played the stepmother, and she was pretending to be broke. And so she really wanted to do – she said, i got to sell broke. And so she made sure she didn't look good. She was just trying to look – and um, and she the, it was the whole week she was so weird, but fun, but weird. Like the, the run through, she would kind of like mumble through it, and she would, she would scratch at the back of a mirror that she found that she thought this woman would have with her thumbnail. And it was like and, – and then she would say, I'm really I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm telling the makeup person, look, I'm very sweaty. So if I just raise my hands like that, you just got to come and powder my pits. You just have to do that because I'm very sweaty. Everybody's like, oh, Cloris, it's insane. The last – the day before, but she was just professional. She just turned it on, and she was great. And the last uh, run-through I think we did, she was so incredibly funny, but she had an exit. And she was exiting with Brian Doyle Murray, who was playing the doorman. And she was like, I don't know. Like she asked him for his McNuggets, for some of his McNuggets. And she's like, wouldn't he give them to me? <laughs> I think he'd give them to me. And then Brian's like, yeah, I think I would give them to her. And I'm like, okay, well, try, try, try giving them to her. And so he do, he's really funny. He like, she wants his McNuggets. He knows that she's BSing. He gives her his McNuggets. She's just pretending to be poor. So he gives her his McNuggets and kind of rolls his eyes. It's very funny. And then she walks out and stops and then turns and says, no dipping sauce. <laughs> Which, when Forrest Leachman said it, was really funny. And then... But it's like, wow, like that was what it's like to work with somebody who's just brilliant and funny and charming and hardworking and just electric. And I was just, you know, she's just incredibly great. And it starts from, I think, being a superstar and being insanely talented, but never, ever thinking about how she was looking on screen. Like, you look at that woman who had really, with it eight years before, maybe seven years before, had won an Oscar and had... Um, uh, 
uh, being a, the, the lead, the glamour lead in a, in a TV show. And she's Nurse Diesel with like a mustache. She gave herself, she told me how she did, she gave herself a little mustache. She just, it was it's based on a real person <laughs> who did wardrobe. At over a twentieth. So Nurse Nurse Diesel was her character in the Mel Brooks High Anxiety, the parody of, of the um, of the uh, Hitchcock movies, uh, and she did have that one fantastic uh, line, which is, um, "Those who are late will not get fruit cup." Oh, allow me to introduce Nurse Diesel, my right hand man, woman. Doctor Thorndike, how do you do? Charlotte Diesel. Sure, you want to rest a bit and freshen up before you meet the rest of the staff. Dinner is served promptly at 8 in the private dining room. Those who are tardy do not get fruit cup. <laughs> Which, uh, Those who are late do not get fruit cup. That's right. We will not get fruit cup. Uh, what's interesting about her, again, is that she really hit it as an actress at the age of 40. Like, she she had very little profile in the in the business and uh, had been, I guess, on Lassie at some point. But other than that... Um, and then she just comes out of nowhere, uh, both on the Mary Tyler Moore show and in the Last Picture show. It's kind of startling. Like uh, that—that's not a—that's not a common story. You mentioned, by the way, Susie Kurtz, who I just want to take a, a brief detour. Susie Kurtz, uh, the most interestingly named actress who yeah. has ever lived, and that was her name. And the reason that her name was Susie Kurtz is, is that her father was a pilot. Uh, piloted the uh, the F-17, the Flying Fortress, which was called the Swoosie, the one that he, it was half swan, half goose. And it was called the Swoosie. And so he named her he was called the Swoosie. after the Flying yeah. Fortress, this, you know, astounding World War II bomber that her father was uh, one of the pilots of. And I just love that. I don't know. It's just such a fantastic name, story. I'm bummed. I was... I- I always thought it was a stage name that she picked where she took the name Swoosie from the plane and then the name Kurtz from Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. And Yes. You know. Well, her father may have was Colonel <laughs> yeah. Kurtz, actually. I think he was a colonel. Uh, in fact. <laughs> there you go. Uh, he was Colonel Kurtz, yeah. Yes, Colonel um, Frank Allen Kurtz, and you know, Jr. Well, the show that I did, the scene, the scene that I just described was in an episode where she was Swoosie Kurtz's, right. the plurist was Swoosie Kurtz's stepmother. Um, who, who Susie referred to as stepmother, stepmother. I love my step, you know. Uh, and um, they were in a bunch of scenes together, and it was great, great to watch these two. You know, Susie's you know, a good deal younger, but like to watch Susie just like these are two incredibly talented, funny people who just knew how to do it. And then and David Ogden Styers played the husband, uh, and he what was, was the really name good of the show? too. This was so love and money, love, love money. and money, right? And they improvised improvised a. A little moment of a goodbye because she, she was always working. She said, I, I feel like the goodbye – she had some elegant thing, and she said, I don't feel like I would be elegant with him because they hated each other. It was like vampires and werewolves. And so we said, well, try it, whatever you want to say. Try, try, when you say goodbye to him, say goodbye how you'd say it. And she looked at him, and she said – I forget his name. His name was James. I forget his name. James. Like, see you in hell, James. That's what she said. And he looked at her, and he said – and he just improvised it goes – that's certainly what it will be if I see you. <laughs> and then they kind of walked away. So it's like, great. David Ogden Styers was one of those actors. Late. The late David Ogden The late was one of those actors who had this astonishing quality, which is that he mostly played villains. But yeah. 
with integrity. His villains were people with integrity and were formidable and were funny because he was funny and he understood what was funny about them, but they were always people you, as characters, you were forced to respect. It's a weird quality. I don't know that it, it, that very few actors yeah, ever yeah. had that. When he was on MASH, because he, of course, came in as the substitute for um, for Larry Linville, who had played the, you know, the sort of the bumbling bad doctor. Right. And he right, came in right. as this patrician right. who was he couldn't stand being around. All An early clock. QAnon believer was Frank. That's right. Anyway, um, and, you know, the whole point was he was not to be trifled with. And, and no, he's good, yeah, yeah right. uh, John Larroquette's a little like that. There are certain... Larroquette's great, too, yeah. I mean, they, 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 they both... I think they have a similar... Uh, well, you know, David was also just a, a stage actor mm-hmm. and had done Godspell for years with Victor Garber and, like, it was, like, uh-huh. in all these horrible 70s... He used to say we... we, we he said we used to call it God, a dog smell. Because it was so horrible. We had to go around the country <laughs> doing gods. That was awful. And he and Victor Garber would, like, complain. And they'd be, they, 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 these are, like, people who just, like, would get up in the morning and do the show. And there is something. Like, Swoosie Chris would talk about that. Like, yeah, you know, you know, like, you could say to Swoosie, say this line the way you said this other line seven months ago. And she's like, oh, okay. And they'd say, but not quite with that much spin. So take it down a half a click. She okay. And she would do exactly that. She just, it was just, these are people who just, I mean, and Cloris could do that too, but, you know, she was just a little bit more, you know, zany. Um, but it's, it's I remember when I first moved to LA, there was this, there was a, 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 um, a, a Mexican restaurant in Venice Beach, and the name, I forgot what it was called, and, but it was an early Frank Gehry, uh, the architect, interior. So the interior was kind of cool. In the 1989 or 1990, it was, it was the coolest place ever. And I remember somebody I've met there saying, uh, yeah, well, you know, this place gets a lot of, like, celebrities and A-listers because, you know, the bartender is uh, Cloris Leachman's son. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, my introduction to uh. like, Wow, okay. <laughs> so uh, the glitz and the glamour. <laughs> wow, that whole thing. Um, oh, go ahead. Hey, uh, since you brought up MASH, yeah, yeah. And, and David Ogden Stars, um, I don't think we ever talked about this, but I, I put forward to you that every character that replaced a main character was worse than the character they replaced. And you could even put uh, woke hot lips into that category, too, because mean hot lips was so much better than uh, sort of new feminist hot lips. Um, does anybody, I mean, I liked Colonel Potter. Right. But Colonel Blake was better. Uh, BJ had his moments, but Trapper John was better. Frank Burns just was one of the great hateable characters in all of television. Um, even though Winchester had his moments. I mean, was there, and, and, Radar wasn't really replaced by a character, but they made Klinger a mainstream character, um, and he just wasn't nearly as subtle. You know, he was just playing it for gags for the most part. Am, am I wrong about anybody? I mean, I I hated that show so much. But you've seen every episode. I hated Mash. Oh, thank you. I, hated I and Mash took an interesting turn because of course Mash is a weird show because most shows that were. 
adaptations of TV shows were knockoffs that didn't work. There were sort of only two knockoffs of a movie, right? right? Knockoffs of a movie, and they were like, you know, using what we would now look at as IP. It was like IP, so it was pre-sold, so you could make. And with the exception, uh, the Odd Couple and Mash, as far as I know, are the only two ones that really like took off. Uh, but they made dozens of them. They made two different animal houses. They made all kinds of things. Happy Days was sort of uh, inspired. But although Happy Days was, of course, a knockoff of a, something that Gary Marshall had made for as a pilot before American Graffiti. That's the weird mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and, in fact, Ron Howard was in this thing, and that's how he got the job in American Graffiti. But there was another one. There was another movie. Yeah. I forget what it was called. There was the, the, right. the, that was inspired them to think, oh, maybe we should do this for a yeah. TV show. But so Mash, you know, takes off. Uh, the 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 movie was an enormous success, an enormous hit, a big made Robert Altman's career, and was a made Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould into stars, and was this big thing, uh, counterculture comedy. And then it goes to TV. And it's unexpectedly sort of fun and zippy and all this. And then it takes this turn into self-righteous, pathetic, yeah. uh, I hate anti-war liberalism and drippy melodrama, yeah. self-righteous. And here's the weird thing. It was a, on is a, a successful movie set in the Korean War that was really about the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War. Right. And it was on TV because it was a way for them to talk about the Vietnam War without saying, without being part, really directly entangled and enmeshed in that debate. Right. The minute Vietnam era was over, that's when MASH became unfunny because it, it was like, well, you, you've succeeded. The war is over. Everybody agrees with you. And it was like classic, like the, the, everybody agrees with us. We have to agree louder. So you had this crazy thing, like nobody in that entire MASH unit thought that, I mean, although not by the standards of today, but by then they were all feminists. They were all extremely, um, for, for 1952, racially evolved. There was like... It was this insane thing, and, and that's one of the reasons why the jokes, you could actually, I think you could actually measure them on a graph. They became more, right. they were more puns yeah. than jokes, and puns are what you write when you're not fun. But I mean, it was all that, you know, they were winning, they were winning Christopher Awards and Peabody's and having these, you know, you are, you're having these black and white documentary shows about the horrors of being a doctor in the middle of a war with Alan Alda, right. you know, and Alan Alda as the doctor in the fake documentary. And of course, Alan Alda becomes a sort of feminist activist and Mike Farrell, who played BJ, becomes an anti-war activist and blah, 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 blah. And I just hated it. And the yeah. The weird thing about Mike Farrell is that he feel I think well, you know Wayne Rogers by the way left oh, the show right. to become a star on his own and it didn't that didn't really work out so he ended up becoming an investor and becoming phenomenally phenomenally rich he's one of the richest people around because he was just an investor afterwards and and was on then he he was a conservative he was the only he was and he went he was on Fox on one of those Fox oh, yeah. morning business shows on Saturday morning he was on, on Fox business, business all the yeah, time yeah. right. Every now and then he pops up, I, uh, but Mike Farrell like realized there was there was no room for him to be just a normal liberal because they were all normal liberals. He, as a person, had to be like incredibly left wing. It's always the problem in that those institutions. It's like the problem in every you know English department and every university. It's like it's not enough to like just wear a Biden Harris sticker. You have to like 
that's that's taken. That seat is already taken. You have to go far. And it reminds me like when I when I was in school, there were two there were two chaplains. There was a a, a, a Jewish rab a rabbi and a, a Protestant chaplain, and then the uh, and they kind of competed in a way to be more woke. This is in the early '80s, but more woke than the other. But the rabbi had it. He had he could have had he had the ace up his sleeve because as the Protestant was talking about like the liberal multiculturalism and the nuclear arm, Armageddon that's going to happen and all that thing uh, and the rabbi could say yes 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 um, I remember when I was um, marching with Dr King you win you win game over. Why? So I why go through this again? <laughs> right. So I just want to say I looked this up. Mash I think ran eleven seasons. So I just looked this up, and uh, and yeah, the executive producer, the guiding uh, light of the show for the first four seasons, was in fact one of the funniest people of the twentieth century, Larry Gelbart, who uh, right. wrote uh, Tootsie and wrote a funny thing happened on the way of the forum, wrote plays, wrote this, wrote that, famously said uh, the greatest line in the history of theater that he hoped if Hitler were alive, he were out of town with a musical. Um, Larry Gubbart was hysterically funny, and he wa- he wrote, I don't know, 25 episodes or something like that in the first four seasons, and then left, and then right. it was, uh, then uh, Alan Alda and Gene Reynolds took the show over, and then they turned it into the, yeah. let's get as many That was always my impression, award. is that yeah. once it became creative control. The, and he led the last episode of MASH, the final episode, Goodbye, Farewell, MASH, uh, a match ended the year Cheers began, and uh, everyone assumed that Mash would win the Emmy that year because it's the finale, and that's what you do. You win the finale. Um, but the, fina- the match finale was so bloated and kind of like slow mm-hmm. and didn't seem quite like that good um, that Cheers won that year. <laughs> and you can still see it on, pe- on people's faces like, what? Like, that's not supposed to happen. Um, but there you go. And then when Cheers was over, the Cheers finale, Seinfeld, which won. I can now take, so Seinfeld won because the Cheers finale was like, yeah. like twenty minutes too long. I mean, the interesting thing about the the match finale is, I believe it remains. Is it does it remain the single most watched television show of all time? I don't know. I can't remember. I think I think I mean, it. it I think 118 million people supposedly watched, if I remember that number right. Watched Goodbye, Farewell, and, and Amen, which was two and a half hours long, as I recall. And the whole thing was about whether or not... It was long. Uh, Hawkeye was going to get to say goodbye to BJ. That was the entire episode was. Right. Was Hawkeye going to get to right. say goodbye to BJ? And, you know... The, which is weird, because I'm sure that... Also, classical music was ruined for Winchester. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, because uh, I think Alan Alda did, did not say goodbye to Mike Barrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. Alan, you're, you're, you're done. Okay, I'm done for the day. I'll see you. Yeah. Well, I have one more scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I just read something about how uh, Netflix is now saying, whether it's true or not, we'll never know, is saying that Bridgerton, the Shonda Rhimes, the weird Shonda Rhimes gossip girl in 1815 London show with a multicultural cast and a lot of sex, is the most watched Netflix show ever. That is the claim. Uh, that 81 million people have watched Bridgerton. But, of course, the way Netflix does it, Netflix says, like, 81 million people watch two minutes. Right, the extended trailer. Something like that. And MASH, that last MASH, was watched 
by 50% of the people alive in America at that time. Right. And Roots, I think, was watched by close to 50%. Half of the television was on at that moment were tuned to that. And that, with 100% of the the households in the United States with televisions. It is weird, I have to say. Like, having had that experience not quite that elaborately i mean i was not in the country for the cheers finale i was but but when close when the seasons i worked on cheers it was like a 30 share show a third of the tv sets in use at the time were tuned to cheers you could drive around town at nine o'clock on a thursday and look in people's windows and every third window had cheers on and that's a something like it's the, although rob at the same time to be fair you looked in when you looked in windows a lot of other nights too I mean, that was just one of the things we used to do. That's how I, that's how I know. <laughs> that's, that was a control group. That's how I know. Oh, it must be Thursday. I'm just, I'm just, uh, work, I work for the Nielsen, uh, uh, the Nielsen family, uh, the Nielsen research. So I'm just going to peek in here. But you know, now <clears throat> these days, no one needs to peek into anybody else's window to know what they're doing because online, as you may know, social media and big tech are looking into our computers, see everything we do, see every place, site we visit, see every video we watch. They know who we are. They're selling our data to each other. And uh, they're trying to curb our rights and freedoms. They're deplatforming speech they don't agree with. So instead of letting big sites try to control your speech and control your data, why not revoke their right to your data That's why I choose to protect my online data by using ExpressVPN. Ever wonder how free-to-access social media companies make all their money? They do it by tracking your searches, your video history, and everything you click on, and then selling your data. So when you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network. And the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer and you're protected. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash glop. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash glop. Expressvpn.com slash glop to protect your data today. Thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring the glop podcast. Um, Rob, you love business and you understand business a lot more than I do. And I've been struggling. I've been struggling to understand or get my mind around what's been going on with GameStop. Oh my God. It's so complicated. With GameStop. Uh, that didn't keep me from doing a half hour segment on the commentary podcast about this. <laughs> Most of which I kept saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. I wrote a G file about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't. But so Jonah wrote a G, G file about it. I, expressed large thoughts about our declining social uh, uh, contract, uh, but I don't know what I'm talking about. But, Rob, I think you may know a little more about what you're talking about. Well, I only know that I don't agree with all of the sort of... uh, You're you're a big short seller, right? I'm short, yes. No, I'm not a big short seller. I think short selling is dumb for people... No, no, you're big... (laughs) I sell my shorts, by the way, on my OnlyFans. I, I don't uh, I don't agree with I mean I, I don't think that this can thank you I don't think that this can be um, the, 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 what I see now people saying well this is just like Trump this is Trumpism it's really not um, it's a bunch of 
day traders who can communicate with each other and coordinate in a way they couldn't do and they didn't do years ago. Um, and they could do it on now a whole bunch of apps, not just Reddit, but like Discord, basically. These are young men mostly who are already gamers and are already on the Discord app, are already chatting with each other. And this is a video game for them that they think they can win. Um, and the only way that this is, a, this is, a, this is like the – I guess the, I would say like what happened on January 6th is that these are people who are banding together that can cause a great disruption. But there was never, there was never a chance – that the people storming the Capitol are actually going to have a revolution. It's not like that's how you have a revolution in a country. You just uh, be a bunch of guys with dressed like Fred Flintstone march in, and then suddenly all the all the legislators say, "Okay, we'll do whatever you want." And that's kind of what's happened here. So you have short sellers, and you have and you have people not short selling, picking a stock for some reason. Games GameStop, which is the uh, basically a moribund zombie company, right, which sells is in this indefensible business model. It sells a, it sells it's the blockbuster of video games. Yes. It sells uh, retails use video games in a format that no one uses, right? It's just a matter of time before it's turned into a you know, a the couples or a whatever, like some fast fashion store. And the short there's a thing called a short squeeze. So the short sellers borrow shares and to pay – and they can't take the money. So they sell shares they don't own. They keep the cash, and their theory is that the shares will be cheaper in whatever, whatever the contract's over, whenever in two weeks, three weeks, week, a month, whatever it is, when I have to return the shares. And when that creates a short squeeze because then it means a lot of short sellers now have to buy shares at a lower price, which means the shares go up. So this creates a kind of a weird feedback that if you're coordinating with a bunch of like individuals, you could potentially – you could potentially profit from, which is sort of what's happened. So the, the, these big hedge funds, they, they say they were broken by the little guy, but they weren't really. Eventually, the big hedge funds will win because they have more money and they have a, a ability to sustain losses greater than individuals. I mean, you have people who don't have the money who are now have a $50,000 position in GameStop. GameStop's going to end this in a week or two at lower than its initial price because it's not worth anything as a company. So it's, it's not like... I think it's crashing as we're talking. As someone's texting. crashing as we're talking, yeah. So that that's gonna all these little guys are gonna just they're gonna they're gonna get taken for a ride and they're gonna feel like oh yeah, but it's gonna be in the sense that it's like Trump. It's gonna be the equivalent of like watching the FBI come in and arrest that guy who was so proud and thrilled that he stole the the, the lectern. You know, like you, 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 this is not how you you should you should not be trading stocks this way. You should not be short selling if you're a normal person. You should not be thinking that you have lots of power because you're in Discord. You you know, put your money in an index fund or something like that, and you're fine. And that's as smart as an individual can be. It's not your job to look at the market. So that'd be my my point. What I don't get is this rush from some people in the. I mean, I look. I understand whenever. Rich and powerful and connected people see lots of money going out their window that's theirs. They, like, want a bailout or something. But the idea that, like, you can come up with some really clever regulation to prevent this, to prevent people from voluntarily making crappy investments, you know, um, is – it just – it seems to me it's like what could go wrong? Right. I mean, I, just, I don't I, – it seems to me, like, give the market 10 minutes to figure out how to process this problem, and it'll deal with it, you know? But there is no financial or market regulation. There's no banking regulation. There's no international regulation. There's no consumer protection regulation that is more powerful 
than going broke. Yeah, no. Going broke is the best regulatory function ever. If these day traders lose $50,000, that's too bad, but they will never do it again. To me, it's like, it's like if there's a problem with weirdly suicidal people peeing on the electrified third rail of railroad tracks, yeah. passing a new law prohibiting people from peeing on the third rail uh, is pointless because the problem will solve itself really quickly. <laughs> you know, what yeah. has always interested right. me about the hedge fund business and why uh, why it exists and how it evades certain types of regulatory scrutiny is that uh, the contract between hedge, fund, hedge funds and the people who invest in hedge funds says explicitly that the money that you are giving to a hedge fund to invest is money that you can lose. It is money that is to be played with right. as an investment opportunity, but that the downside risk of all that money going away will not ruin the people who are playing in this field and playing this game. An accredited investor, right, right. right. So what you have is a kind of weird flash mob hedge fund forming to play in this field, sort of a group investment strategy. Uh, but we have absolutely no assurance that any of those people can afford to lose what they're going to lose. Whereas if you give Apollo or one of these hedge funds $5 million and you're worth $100 million, you know, your upside is they could generate enormous profits and your downside is that you'll lose the $5 million. But you're, but you're $5 million the worse off, but you can lose that $5 million. Right. But this is a general problem now, I think, in, the, in, in culture, in our language, which is that the, the term hedge fund, calling these things hedge funds, is this weird anachronistic holdover from a time when a hedge fund was designed to as a hedge against your other investments. Right. So if you got a letter from your hedge fund every year that said, by the way, you lost everything, you know, lose, lose everything, you didn't think that was bad. The hedge fund was shorting the underlying securities mostly that you were long. The idea was like, well, if it all, comes, it all falls apart, we got our hedge fund. That they, our hedge fund will pay us off a little bit, right? But that that's for disaster. Like, let's just saying at the end of the year, you're like, what is this? All this money I spent on fire insurance? I didn't even have a fire. <laughs> like, what's it like? I didn't even get. I didn't even get hit by a bus. Why do I have this catastrophic uh, care health insurance? It's like you don't do that. But it's it's now just become a, just a essentially just a, an investment vehicle, a private equity investment vehicle, for which there's really no discernible difference between that and any other. Um, you have hedge funds now investing in second or third round uh, venture outfits, venture um, projects, which is what a venture fund does. So you're, the way you categorize your investment is now – I don't know how you do it, but it's, but it's like people just say hedge fund, hedge fund. What does that even mean? Well, what it means is that you run a hedge fund and then you give Jeffrey Epstein $150 million for something that you pay your lawyer <laughs> – yeah. for and then you say I, yeah. you know hey i was just he had a tax strategy for me so i'll just quit my hedge fund now before i get you into a lot more trouble because right. frankly uh you know he and i we had a falling out and so you're referring you're referring to leon black i'm referring to leon black the head of apollo um uh who it turns out gave jeffrey epstein 150 million dollars and the explanation that Apollo got from the law firm that it hired to investigate this $150 million relationship between Leon Black and Jeffrey Epstein was, 
Jeffrey Epstein came up with a tax avoidance strategy for him and his family. And then everybody else is like, huh, really? You know, like, that's what every law firm does. <laughs> and, you know, whatever right, right. it was that he made them, he didn't make enough to get $150 million in payments from Leon Black. And uh, Leon Black said, you know what, I'm, quit I'm not going to quit now. I'm quitting in July because uh, it doesn't look good, but I'm not going to uh, assess any blame. And we can now all, as we are doing in the case of Jeffrey Epstein and everybody he was ever uh, in business with or in bed with literally or figuratively, we are going to spend the rest of our lives wondering what on God's green earth happened on that island. Yeah, what happened? Well, I think that we're going to know. I think we're going to know in a few years when Jeffrey Epstein comes forward because he's not dead. Right. When he gives us 60 minutes and tells us. So, uh, yeah. Well, you're whatever 60 so, minutes is. So, uh, Gillen Maxwell, his, uh, his, his, his aide de camp, uh, who is sitting here. Is that how it's pronounced? Gillen? That's how you, that's how you pronounce it? Gillen? Gillen. Yeah. It is pronounced Gillen. Uh, Gillen Maxwell sitting in jail. So, like, he was chilling with Gillen? Gillen. I don't think she pronounces it Gillen. Okay. I believe she pronounces it Gillen. You can look it up. I've heard Gis Lane. It's not Gis Lane. It's pronounced Gillen. Anyway, she uh, went to the judge to say she really wanted to make bail and leave jail before her trial, where she has been held without bail. You know, it's jail. It's awful. They don't let her sleep. And, you know, there's coronavirus and all of this. And um, she managed despite apparently supposedly having no money, to raise $29 million to say to the judge, here, I'm going to give you $29 million as bail. If you set my bail at $29 million, that's what I've raised. I can get out of jail, and I will appear at trial when the trial takes place, and I won't run because it's so much money. So two, two things are raised, but the judge denied this request. A, uh, of course she would run. Uh, if there were any way for her to run, she would get into a cello case like that. The guy who ran, uh, who who was it who ran the in, was in jail in Tokyo? Oh yeah, and got into oh Carlos Carlos another weird name Carlos yeah Go right, yeah Gozer Carlos Gozer yeah Gozer Gozer destroyer um, who yeah who escaped Japan in a in a cello case um, but number two like. Who's giving her $30 million? Like, why are you giving Gillen Maxwell $30 million? Gee, maybe she has something to tell people about you and you and transmit the message. I think it was like, a head. It's a head. <laughs> it's a head. It is the ultimate hedge. And, you know, uh, speaking of um, money and credit and all that kind of stuff, you know that credit card, the one you were afraid to look at to see what the balance is? If you've been avoiding your debt, it's time to confront it. Upstart can help you face it and finally pay it off. Upstart is the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off all your debt online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. You can get approved the same day and can receive funds as fast as business day one. 
If the debt is taking over your life, it's time to get a fresh start with Upstart. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash glop. That's upstart.com slash glop. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Thanks to Upstart for sponsoring the glop podcast. So, uh, Jonah, where can people find you? In the coming weeks, where they can see your your long hair and your distinguished gray beard uh, that are a wonder to all who, who witness it. Um, I think Jonah's looking like an 18th century composer, by the way, I just want to say. He's like, <laughs> if he just got a little curl on the bottom of his hair, he would look like a member of the House of Lords. I uh, I think this is the last weekend. I got to I gotta do something about it. But... Um, uh, I was on NPR this morning, and I will be I, – apparently I'm on Martha McCallum's show one day next week. Not sure when. And then uh, I'm on special report sometime after that. But basically, just come to the dispatch. Check out the dispatch. Subscribe to the G-File, and, uh, and the rest will work itself out. And Rob, martini shot. Let's hear about the martini shot. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm relaunching it <clears throat> probably in about a week, um, although it's available now if you go – to uh, podcasts, wherever you get your fine podcast, and type in my name and Martini Shot, you can subscribe. There's, there's, there's some up there now. Just the, 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 the new versions will come out the beginning of you know next month, like beginning of February. Uh, and and if you're absolutely dead set on hearing more, you could go to uh, Radio Europe or I mean, Radio Ireland RTE, and uh, which I won't even bother pronounce in 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 the original Gaelic. And I'm there. I'm in I'm RTE. Like I'm a I'm an Irish radio. That's uh, I will. I'm not going to mention Shillelaghs and and leprechauns and stuff like that. Just, that I'll do a little jig. Uh, manly, yes, but I like it too. If you if you catch me, I have to grant you a wish. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you can catch me every day on the Commentary Magazine podcast uh, and a uh, few other places because though I have a deal at MSNBC, I am increasingly doubtful that I will ever. <laughs> I will ever see. <laughs> I will ever see airtime again. Um, so, uh, but so yes, I, I I I blather about things I know nothing about on on the commentary podcast, like GameStop, uh, very frequently. And if you want to hear me, go there. Subscribe to Commentary Magazine. Listen to our podcast. Leave a five star review on iTunes. We're gonna have some merch. We're developing merch. We're going to sell some merch. Jonah, is there dispatch merch? There's some, but there's going to be more. Uh, we are going to probably become a Fortune 500 company once the Zoe and Pippa uh, merch comes online. And uh, it's. I was hoping for the David French centerfold. That that would be my. That's a good idea. You know, sort of like the Burt Reynolds Cosmopolitan centerfold, but with. Uh, hmm. With David French, yeah, but the David French centerfold would be David uh, politely sitting upright in a church pew. Hmm. Um, a little different, so yes, yes, right. I feel like that's like, I feel like that's from my dream journal. Yeah, and watching a and watching a really bad DC superhero movie. <laughs> uh, when when the sermon gets too boring, that's anyway. a big that's a big centerfold. It's a lot of material uh, in that center. Okay. <laughs> okay, guys, so we will reconnoiter and reconvene uh, and uh, 
at some point in the near future. In the near future. To the near future. Should there be one. Ah, yes. Manly, yes. But I like it. Keep hope alive. Join the conversation. Uh, Phyllis, how, how are you uh, too much of a real woman? I don't like to brag, Rhoda. But Lars and I had an incredible love life. Would you like to know how incredible? <laughs> oh, gosh, Phil, I don't I'm going to tell you. Incredible it was. I think Lars summed it up best when he turned to me one night and said, Felix Jagharsluta. <laughs> Apparently that's all over now. <laughs> Phyllis, it's not all over. You know, just the other day, I was reading this wonderful book called The Life of the Bee. <laughs> Maybe you read it. Did you know the male bee is nothing but the slave of the queen? And once the male bee, uh, how should I say, um, has serviced the queen, <laughs> the male dies. All in all, not a bad system. 